Way back in the before times, so last October, I published a podcast episode about the 1918-1919 Spanish flu pandemic. And in that episode, I said, The most pressing question is, can it happen again? And the answer is, of course it can. This is something you say when you talk about pandemics or earthquakes or economic depressions. Can it happen again? Of course, you say. The only question is when. Here's the thing. I didn't mean now. I meant it could happen again in some far-off, hazy future. Not in 2020, when I had other plans. Just because I told all of you to be prepared doesn't mean that I was prepared. And yet, here we are. This is the year that was, 1919. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday. Welcome to the podcast where we tell the story of one year at a time. This is going to be a different sort of episode because I have learned, as probably all of you have learned, that there's a big difference between learning about a pandemic and living through a pandemic. I have a different perspective now and different questions. For example, I never associated the labor issues we discussed in episode 14 or the racial unrest in episode 16 with the flu pandemic. Now it seems obvious that they had to have been related. So I started jotting down new questions about the Spanish flu. I also put this out on Facebook and Twitter and asked friends for their questions. The response was incredible, and I want to thank everyone who replied. So today I'm bringing you a follow-up episode about the Spanish flu. There's no narrative, and if you want to learn about the flu pandemic from start to finish, I recommend you listen to episode 8. That episode will also give you a better sense of the global implications of the flu, while this episode is focused primarily on the United States. Okay, let's do this. Let's start with a question from Elaine, who asked, what was the common understanding of the cause of the pandemic? Most doctors recognized the disease as a type of influenza. Flu had been around for centuries, after all. The conclusion wasn't universal, however, because the 1918-1919 disease was so much more devastating than seasonal flu. Some physicians worried that they were dealing with a new variant of typhus, cholera, even dengue fever. Doctors tried to identify the germ-causing agent, but they hit a wall because they lacked the necessary tools or even the necessary theoretical framework. They assumed influenza was caused by bacteria rather than by a virus. Bacteria were well known in 1918. They were first described in the late 17th century, and in the mid-19th century, the germ theory of disease linked bacteria to infection. Doctors could identify under a microscope the bacteria that caused anthrax, tuberculosis, cholera, typhus, and many other diseases. But viruses, such as those that cause influenza or COVID-19, were still unknown. 
viruses were much too small to be seen by early 20th century microscopes. The first images of viruses weren't available until the invention of the scanning electron microscope in the late 1930s. Some doctors had proposed the existence of disease-causing agents smaller than bacteria, but this theory was not universally accepted. The focus on bacteria sent many doctors down the wrong path. One popular theory was that the flu was caused by a bacterium called Pfeiffer's bacillus. Dr. Richard Pfeiffer had discovered it in 1892, and sure enough, when researchers swabbed the throats of flu patients, they usually found the bacteria. Heroic efforts went into developing a vaccine for Pfeiffer's bacillus in 1918. The problem was that Pfeiffer's bacillus does not, in fact, cause the flu. It is a relatively common bacteria that you could very well be carrying right now. So all of that hard work did nothing to slow the pandemic. Today, of course, doctors know exactly which virus causes COVID-19. Tests identify specific genetic material from the virus. It's unimaginable today to think of doctors telling the public there's a horrible pandemic and we have no idea what's causing it. But doctors had no idea what caused many diseases in 1918 and everyone just lived in that uncertainty. Next question. Was the second wave of the pandemic caused by the relaxing of social distancing measures? I discussed back in episode eight how the Spanish flu happened in three waves. The first was in the spring of 1918, and it was a worse than usual, but not devastating outbreak of flu. The strangest thing about it was that the disease hit young, healthy people more than most influences, and it sickened many soldiers on the Western Front. But few of those soldiers actually died. Then, in the fall of 1918, the second wave hit, and this was the bad one. This was the wave that killed millions all around the globe. Now, some articles and memes have showed up suggesting that this second wave was the result of the lessening of social distancing and quarantine measures. There is no evidence that this is true. Very few measures were taken in the spring to limit the spread of the flu. Social distancing requirements weren't employed until the fall. There is no evidence that public behavior changed between the first and the second waves. This becomes very clear when looking at the experience of the military. There was no social distancing in the trenches. I mean, obviously. And yet, multiple waves swept through the ranks, the second far more deadly than the first. Why then were there multiple waves? Most researchers believe that the second wave was a mutation of the original virus. Flu viruses can evolve very rapidly. That's why we need a new flu vaccine every year. It's likely the virus evolved over the summer into a similar but more lethal variety of the flu. Now, the third wave of the Spanish flu is another matter. The third wave hit in the spring of 1919, and it seems to have been a recurrence of the second wave. And it hit after the social distancing and quarantine measures were lifted. 
Australia, for example, avoided the second wave by strictly quarantining the continent. It ended its quarantine right before the third wave. So there is a lesson about ending social distancing too soon in the 1918 flu. It's just not where people have been looking for it. Next question, both Elaine and Angelica asked about treatments and in particular about home remedies. This is a fascinating topic. Aspirin was the most effective medication on hand and it was widely used. In fact, it may have been overused. Researchers have proposed that aspirin poisoning may have contributed to the death toll. In high doses, aspirin can cause the lungs to fill with fluid. Doctors didn't know this in 1918. Nothing else on the pharmacy shelves seemed particularly useful against the flu, but that didn't stop doctors from throwing everything they had at the disease. Patients were giving quinine, digitalis, atropine, epinephrine, morphine, heroin, strychnine, and arsenic. Some doctors tried injecting patients with the typhoid vaccine with the hope it would stimulate the immune system. One reported injecting hydrogen peroxide intravenously. Many doctors insisted that any cure had to involve, quote, keeping the bowels open. This meant patients were routinely dosed with laxatives, including large doses of castor oil. One doctor gave his patients enemas of warm milk mixed with creosote, even the ancient technique of bloodletting was revived by a few doctors without success. Meanwhile, individuals turned to folk remedies. This brings me to a question from Ed, who asked, how did they handle constant misinformation on Facebook and Instagram? He kids, but of course, misinformation was just as hard to counter then as now. Onions and garlic were popular remedies, either cooked eaten raw, hung around one's neck, or placed cut open around the house to attract the virus. This one still pops up on Facebook. People also wore pouches filled with camphor, a very stinky plant derivative used as an alternative to mothballs. Various tonics and elixirs were popular, among them Dr. Kilmer's Swamp Root, Dr. Williams' Pink Pills, Minard's Liniment, and Abby's Effervescent Salts. Another favorite was Vicks VapoRub, an ointment introduced in 1905. The Spanish flu was the making of Vicks VapoRub. The factory was put on double shifts and shipments were sold out the moment they hit stores. A friend of mine told me that her grandmother kept the flu away from her household in 1918 through the liberal application of Vicks VapoRub on her children every single day. I wonder if this is when my own grandmother, who was a young woman during the flu pandemic, picked up her faith in mentholatum, a similarly stinky rival of Vicks. When I was a kid, whenever I had a cold, she would smear it all over my chest, then slap a Kleenex to the ointment to keep it from getting my clothes oily and send me off to school. I was not a popular child. Anyway. Next question. Patty, who is a nurse, hi Patty, asks, I assume most people died at home. Were there home visits by doctors and nurses, or did most people go it alone with family? 
First, your assumption is not entirely correct. If you lived in the country or a small town, it's unlikely you would go to the hospital. Only a few regional hospitals even existed, and they were completely overwhelmed. If you lived in the city and you had money, you generally could get doctors and nurses to come to your home. In fact, there were rumors, particularly in New York, of the wealthy bribing nurses to give their family members extra time and attention, or even kidnapping nurses to keep them at the bedside. Nevertheless, in cities, the hospitals were full, and many patients were among the poorest in the country. Millions of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe lived in desperately overcrowded tenements in cities like New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. On the Lower East Side, 10 people on average lived in each room. In these conditions, there was no way to keep the sick away from the healthy. In New York, the health commissioner made hospitalization compulsory for all flu patients living in shared accommodation, such as boarding houses and tenements. This decision was based as much on prejudice as public health. Middle-class white Americans held long-standing beliefs that immigrants were dirty, unclean, paternalistic city officials believe the only way to treat the flu among, say, Italian or Jewish immigrant communities was to remove those patients from their community. At least European immigrants were allowed into regular hospitals. African Americans could only receive treatment from doctors and nurses of color, of which there were few. Fortunately, the mortality rate from the Spanish flu was lower among African Americans than whites. No one knows exactly why, but it was a blessing. As for going it alone, yes, that was often the case because of a massive shortage of trained medical professionals. Remember, thousands of doctors and nurses were in France with the military. The situation was worse in the countryside, where isolated families might never see a health professional. The Red Cross begged anyone with nursing experience to help, and volunteers without any training at all were thrown into hospital wards to do the best they could. Okay, Jennifer asks, were there different infection and mortality rates for different demographics? I'm wondering if age, ethnicity, even population density correlated to different outcomes. The most dramatic difference between the Spanish flu and almost every other flu pandemic is that it killed the young and the healthy at an incredible rate. Generally, those most likely to die from influenza are the very young or the very old. The Spanish flu was different. In the United States alone, nearly half of all deaths were in young adults between 20 and 40. Why was this the case? It's believed that the Spanish flu often triggered in patients what is known as a cytokine storm, the release of chemicals that cause massive inflammation and actually kill the body's own cells. A cytokine storm ravages the lungs, destroying tissue, filling air sacs with fluid, and starving the body of oxygen. It is a desperate act by a desperate immune system, and the stronger the immune system, the more dramatic the reaction. Who has the strongest immune system? Healthy young adults. 
deaths in both the SARS epidemic in 2003 and COVID-19 have been linked to cytokine storms, and the condition remains difficult to treat even in modern intensive care units. Another reason has been proposed for the relatively low death rate among people over 60. A previous pandemic, the so-called Russian flu of 1889-1890, is believed to have been caused by a flu virus with genetic similarities to the 1918 virus. It likely provided at least partial immunity to those who had been exposed to it. Different parts of the world saw dramatic differences in mortality rates. The worst-hit regions were those experiencing famine, war, and other pandemics, basically the four horsemen of the apocalypse. While a strong immune system could mean death for those infected with the virus, a weak immune system was just as likely to be fatal. Individuals weakened by hunger or disease rarely survived. Unfortunately, many individuals around the world were enduring hunger and disease in 1918 and 1919. In India, 10 to 20 million people died. India was in the middle of a severe grain shortage, had lost the majority of its doctors to the war, and had a very poor level of general health. Similarly, millions died in revolutionary Russia, where the horror of the flu was indistinguishable from all of the other horrors of the time. Death rates were also appallingly high among indigenous communities, including Native Americans, Native Alaskans, and Aboriginal Australians. This seems to have been caused by a combination of lack of exposure to previous influenza outbreaks, lack of access to health care, and poor general health among the population. Finally, population density absolutely played a role. The flu swept through crowded communities like a brush fire in a drought. However, the virus was so easily transmitted that people living in isolated communities were not spared. It seems likely, for example, that one or two infected fishermen traveling up the Aleutian Island chain spread the disease to thousands of people. Entire villages were wiped out. Okay, cheerful stuff. Let's keep going. Lance asks, In the United States, who made decisions about how to handle the epidemic? Did the federal government have a response, or were decisions made at the local level? First of all, public health measures such as closing businesses and imposing quarantines are generally the responsibility of states, both then and now. Constitutionally, the authority to make such decisions derives from the police powers granted by state constitutions. So social distancing orders were handled on a local or state level. It is important to note that these sorts of measures were not as unusual as they are today. In the decades leading up to the Spanish flu, quarantines were regularly imposed for diseases, including cholera and typhoid. Usually these were local or regional epidemics. For example, in 1916, New York closed theaters, shut down public meetings, and quarantined families during a polio outbreak. However, the federal government did play a role during the flu pandemic, and that role is very interesting in the way it evolved. The federal response to the flu was driven by two factors, history and the priorities of the president. 
In the 19th century, the responsibility of the federal government regarding public health was limited to identifying and isolating sick individuals arriving in the country. It ran health checks at Ellis Island, for example. But its importance began to expand starting in the late 19th century when the germ theory of disease gave doctors powerful new tools to control illness. However, the role of the federal government in this effort had yet to be clearly defined. The Surgeon General of the United States in 1918 was a doctor named Rupert Blue. Blue had worked in the public health service since 1892 and had played an important role in halting an outbreak of bubonic plague in San Francisco at the turn of the century. I had no idea San Francisco had a bout of medieval plague in 1904. But Blue's role had been to coordinate various branches of government, not to ensure the treatment of patients. Under Blue, the Public Health Service expanded its research arm and did important work on typhoid, nutritional deficiencies, and hookworm disease. But the nitty-gritty business of treating sick people was still a matter for cities and states. So, going into the flu pandemic, the Public Health Service was accustomed to taking a hands-off role. The second factor driving federal response to the flu was the agenda of Woodrow Wilson. It's interesting how power flows from a president. Everyone who surrounds the chief executive is so attuned to the president's inclinations that they are enacted as faithfully as clearly defined orders. Woodrow Wilson issued no public statements about the flu, but everyone in Washington knew the only thing that mattered to the president was winning the war. And so without saying a word, Wilson set the agenda regarding the Spanish flu. It could not be allowed to interfere with the war effort. So the federal government ignored the flu as long as possible and then downplayed its severity to maintain morale. The message that went out to the public was clear. This is no big deal. Don't let this distract you. Focus on war production, liberty loans, knitting socks. Blue fell in line by ignoring the first wave of the flu entirely and only acknowledging the second wave when it was well underway in mid-September 1918. At that point, he ordered all incoming ships to be checked for influenza. It wasn't enough. Cities and states were unable to cope. They begged the federal government for help. After all, the government was shipping doctors and nurses to France. Couldn't they divert a few to treat the sick at home? The answer was no. No, they couldn't. That was out of the question. Military needs came first. But the demand was so great and the death toll so high that Blue could no longer stay silent. His primary concern, however, seems not to have been saving lives, but rather reducing anxiety and maintaining morale. The Surgeon General's statement deliberately downplayed the severity of the illness. Blue told the American people, quote, there is no cause for alarm. His precautions lacked urgency. Avoid needless crowding, Blue's statement read. Smother your coughs and sneezes. Don't let the waste products of digestion accumulate. Seriously, what was the obsession with people's bowels? 
Meanwhile, pleas for help kept pouring in, asking for doctors, asking for nurses. Without even consulting Blue, Congress appropriated $1 million to the Public Health Service on September 26th. That was a lot of money in 1918, enough for Blue to hire 5,000 doctors for emergency duty for a month. Except there weren't 5,000 doctors available. Blue managed to track down 250 physicians, most of them long retired. They probably helped, but it wasn't enough. Blue continued to issue bland statements as the pandemic raged. The Public Health Service printed circulars that were distributed to schools, stores, post offices, and factories. They gave the same advice. Avoid crowds. Take deep breaths. Keep the bowels open. God, just leave people's bowels alone. Then, in early October, when thousands of Americans were dying every day, Blue again told the press, there is no cause for alarm if precautions are observed. This was either laughable or insulting, and by this point, Americans knew it. They had read the pleas for nurses, watched their neighbors fall sick and die, grieved as their own family members succumbed, grappled with the unreality of death without funerals. The only way the government could have won back trust would have been through honest discussion of the risks and clear instructions on what was needed from the public. Continuing to insist that everything was fine when it clearly wasn't fine eroded trust in the government and did more harm to morale than any open assessment of the situation. Reality finally seems to have hit Blue in mid-October. He began actively coordinating with the Red Cross to send doctors where they were most needed. But one observer, the Red Cross director for the New England Division, noted, quote, The federal public health service has been unable to handle adequately the entire situation. They have not been on the job. Meanwhile, Woodrow Wilson spent the fall of 1918 working out the details of his plan for the New World Order under the 14 points. Wilson never spoke about the flu in public, and there are no accounts of him discussing it in private. It's true that this was a different time before presidents were expected to comment on all topics. Between 500,000 and 850,000 Americans died of the flu. And Wilson never said a word. Moving on, Susan asks, did all countries have the same approach? Did one or two do something differently and recover faster? The response absolutely varied across both countries and cities, and so did outcomes. Differences between countries could be particularly stark because so many had no public health service or really any functioning government at all. Russia, for example, was simply in too much chaos to mount any kind of response at all. I find it more instructive to look at cities in the United States because here you can compare apples to apples. National Geographic did a fascinating article on this, and I'm going to be referring to it throughout this section. Some cities responded very late to the epidemic, not instituting restrictions until the disease was well established. The most egregious example was Philadelphia, which held a massive Liberty Loan parade after illness was spreading in the community. If you look at a graph of Philadelphia's influenza mortality rate over time, it looks like a huge spike with hundreds of people falling ill and dying in a very short period of time. 
Now compare Philadelphia to St. Louis. St. Louis put in place strict social distancing measures very early, two days after the first case was identified in the city. The graph for St. Louis is low and flat, and the death rate is less than half that of Philadelphia. One of the most interesting graphs is that of San Francisco. San Francisco has an initial spike not quite as high or as steep as Philadelphia's, but still pretty high. The city slapped all sorts of restrictions on the community, and the death toll fell. But then, about 12 weeks into the pandemic, San Francisco lifted its restrictions. Boom, the numbers go up again. Not as high as the first time, but it's a serious jump. The San Francisco graph looks kind of like a lopsided U. So to those who question social distancing and quarantines, these graphs are revealing. What restrictions were imposed in 1918-1919? Most cities closed all churches. Public meetings of any kind were banned. Patty asked how the pandemic affected elections, and the answer is that it had a major impact on campaigning. A midterm election was scheduled for November, and senators and congressional representatives could do little but send ads to newspapers. By November 5th, Election Day, the flu was diminishing on the East Coast, and voting proceeded there as usual. In California, however, some poll sites couldn't open because too many volunteer workers were sick. Most Western communities saw a rise in infections after Election Day. However, this was merely a blip compared to what would happen a week later when the armistice was announced. Cities couldn't stop spontaneous celebrations. People who hadn't left their homes for weeks flooded into the streets. A few days later, many of them fell ill. Stephanie asked about performances, and most cities and towns shut down all theaters, cinemas, and concerts. Many touring companies were stuck for weeks far from home. A troop of 50 vaudevillians were marooned in Salt Lake City and complained to a local paper that they were bored out of their minds. One said they played blackjack so much, quote, the sight of a card fairly nauseated us. Jamie asked about schools, and that's really interesting. In most of the country, schools were closed, but not everywhere. In New York City, for example, schools remained open at the urging of the health department. It argued a few points. First, children were the least likely demographic to fall sick. Second, when children were at school, the city could keep an eye on them and track infections back to their homes. Finally, community leaders feared that the children of immigrants would be at greater risk in the overcrowded and dirty conditions of their tenement homes than at school. There was an element of paternalism here, as in most dealings with immigrant communities. Restaurants also weren't shut down because they were essential for many city residents. Remember those tenement dwellers packed into a room on the Lower East Side? They didn't have kitchens. Boarding houses also offered residents no way to cook, so restaurants stayed open. The goal was to keep people fed, but to discourage gathering in groups. Ice cream parlors and soda shops were closed. Live music and dancing were prohibited. In Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, it was made illegal to serve pie. To clarify, if you had an entire meal, you could have a slice of pie for dessert. But it was against the law to go into a restaurant and just order pie. Because pie, as we all know, is the first step down a slippery slope. <laughs> 
to a party. Public information campaigns warned people to cover their mouths and noses when they coughed or sneezed. Shaking hands was discouraged and actually outlawed in Prescott, Arizona. Spitting was a big problem. Apparently, the men of 1918 were so accustomed to spitting on the street that it took the threat of fines or imprisonment to make them stop. One senior military official went so far as to tell the newspapers, quote, every person who spits is helping the Kaiser. Some cities, Phoenix, Arizona, for example, required every person in public to wear a face mask. This brings us to a question of Maggie's. I would like to know more about the resistance to face masks. The face mask became a symbol of the Spanish flu, and it prompted as much heated debate then as now. Masks were a relatively new innovation in healthcare, first introduced in 1897 by a French surgeon. During an outbreak of pneumonic plague in 1910-1911, a Chinese doctor proved through empirical testing that a cloth mask could protect users from the spread of dangerous bacteria. Military doctors introduced the practice in the United States during the pandemic, and it spread rapidly into the community. Masks developed nicknames. They were known as flu fences or chin sails. One Red Cross poster associated wearing a mask with patriotic duty and declared, quote, the man or woman or child who will not wear a mask now is a dangerous slacker. Slacker being about the worst thing to call someone during the war. Ordinance requiring masks were most common in western cities and states. These orders were difficult to enforce. Opponents argued the masks were uncomfortable, ineffective, and violated civil liberties. In fact, they probably were ineffective. Most masks were made of gauze, a thin, porous fabric that likely did little to halt the spread of the virus. Health officials had the right idea, but the wrong material. Many people either refused to wear masks or wore them sung around their necks or slit holes in the cloth to smoke cigarettes. The most organized mask resistance came from San Francisco. The first documented flu case hit the city in late September 1918. In October, the city's Board of Health instituted laws banning public meetings, closing schools, and on October 25th, requiring every resident and visitor to the city to wear a face mask. Initial compliance was high. The Red Cross sold masks at ferry terminals to incoming passengers. But people quickly grew tired of the masks, and emotions ran high. In one incident, a San Francisco health officer got in an argument with a man named James Wisser, who refused to wear a mask. The officer pulled his gun on Wisser and fired once in the air as a threat. Wisser tackled the officer, and he fired again twice, hitting Wisser in the leg and hand and wounding two completely innocent passers-by. By mid-October, the flu began to withdraw from San Francisco. Restrictions on public gatherings were lifted on November 16th, although the mask ordinance still remained in place. So when thousands packed the Civic Auditorium to watch a boxing match, they were supposed to all be masked. And yet a photographer captured an image of the crowd without a mask in sight. Among those maskless were a congressman, a judge, a Navy rear admiral, the mayor, and the city's chief public health officer. They were all fined. The mask ordinance was officially dropped on November 21st at noon, 
To mark the occasion, whistles blew across the city, and residents simultaneously ripped the gauze off their faces and tossed the masks in the streets. Newspaper described the site, saying, quote, The sidewalks and runnels were strewn with the relics of a torturous month. However, I mentioned earlier that the San Francisco outbreak resembles a U on a graph. The restrictions had been lifted too soon, and by January, the mayor had to acknowledge that influenza was once again sweeping the city. On January 17th, the mask ordinance was reenacted. The public was frustrated. So much death, and the authorities seemed unable to stop it. By then, the idea that the flu was caused by a germ smaller than bacteria had reached the public. Masks seemed pointless. Newspapers scoffed that it was like, quote, using barbed wire fences to shut out flies. Resistance was so heated that several influential San Francisco citizens formed the Anti-Mask League. The group held a public meeting on January 25th that an estimated four to 5,000 citizens attended. On January 27th, the League presented a petition to the city requesting the repeal of the mask ordinance. And on February 1st, the requirement was lifted. The masks were a symbol, an outward and visible sign of all of the restrictions of the flu, and so they made an easy target. They still do. Okay, next question. This is from Thomas, who asks, what were the quarantine activities and pastimes while people hunkered down in their homes? This is one area where our experience and that of a century ago are incredibly different. Imagine being stuck at home with no internet, no social media, no online games, no TV, no radio, probably not even a telephone. Gives us chills. But that was just life. People were accustomed to entertaining themselves with books, puzzles, games, music, and crafts. Take the diary of 15-year-old Violet Harris of Seattle. When schools closed, she was thrilled, but then reality set in and she found herself looking for ways to pass the time. She sewed a new dress and tried out new recipes. One experimental batch of fudge was such a disaster she dumped it in the garbage. With few ways to communicate outside of her household, she was shocked to find her best friend had been seriously ill with the flu. Most accounts of living through the pandemic agree that the sudden severing of social ties was the most difficult part. Zoom parties may not be ideal, but they're better than nothing. Isolation seems to have been worse in the country. Families might not see anyone outside of their own household for weeks. This wasn't the result of ordinances or public information campaigns. As the disease spread, fear spread with it. One flu survivor named David Tonkel described that fear in an American Experience documentary. People were actually afraid to talk to one another. It was almost like, don't breathe in my face, don't look at me and breathe in my face, because you may give me the germ that I don't want. And uh, you never knew from day to day who was going to be next on the death list. The level of isolation could be incredibly dangerous if a family fell ill. They could suffer and die without anyone knowing. Children could go hungry because none of the adults in the family were healthy enough to go for food or shiver in the cold because no one could chop wood. 
Some communities survived because those who were healthy took it upon themselves to walk from house to house, stand in the yard, and shout to ask if everyone was all right inside. They might hear back that all was well, or that three family members had died in the night. Or they might get no answer at all and have to weigh the danger of stepping inside to see what had happened. Generous people chopped firewood, hauled water, and milked the cows of their sick neighbors. They cooked food and delivered it to others' homes. There's an amazing oral history by a woman named Edna Register Boone, who was born in 1907 and lived in a small town of about 200 people in Alabama. According to Boone, hers was the only family in the area that didn't fall sick. Her parents took on the responsibility of helping out all of their neighbors. Boone said, Mama would put a, a gauze bandage around my face, and she kept sterilized fruit jars on the stove at all time, and she would fill those jars with soup or whatever there was, and I would take those jars to the home of an, an afflicted family, knock on the door, and leave the, the food at the door for someone to come pick it up. It was not a pretty picture. Boone's father had planted a large patch of sweet potatoes, and he distributed the potatoes to his neighbors. And I would say that half of the community lived off that potato patch because no one was able to go shopping. No one was able to cook. They could bake, bake a few potatoes even if it was in the fireplace. Young as she was, Boone felt it was her responsibility to help. I knew I had to participate. I knew that my family was being protected. I was just, I knew I had to do my part. Andy asks, how did household behavior change? And I think the answer is that it varied. Some people shut themselves off and thought only of their own safety. Others sent their 10-year-olds out with mason jars full of soup. Some volunteered in crowded, stinking hospitals and held the hands of the dying. Others kidnapped nurses so that their child might survive. If I am honest with myself, I understand both reactions. Next question. This is from Jamie. How did the pandemic affect the economy? So if our experience is any guide, we would assume the 1918 economy went into an immediate tailspin. But that was not the case at all. The reason why is very simple. There was a war on. The entire economy had been shifted to a war footing, meaning that all production was focused on military needs. All workers were essential workers. Businesses had to remain open. That doesn't mean that the pandemic had no effect on the economy, but that effect was short-lasting. During the height of the pandemic, retail sales fell. For example, in Little Rock, Arkansas, retail grocery business was reduced by one-third and department store sales by more than half. The only retailers reporting an increase in sales were pharmacies and mattress stores, which makes sense when you think about it. Temporary slowdowns and production declines were reported because employees were too sick to work. 
The Memphis Street Railway, for example, had 124 of its 400 workers out sick, limiting service. Similarly, the Memphis Telephone Company put through only essential calls because more than 100 phone operators were absent. Coal mines in Tennessee struggled to remain operational with half of their staff. But when it was over, industrial output recovered quickly. The stock market never fell. The military never let up on its demands. The economy did falter starting in mid-1919, and a recession lingered through 1923. But this was the result of the halt of wartime production. Millions of people lost their jobs, consumer demand declined, and wages fell. But that was later, months after the pandemic. In the short term, the economy actually grew. A far more difficult question to answer is this. How did the pandemic affect labor conflicts and race relations? One of the things that I didn't appreciate until living through it was how much anger and fear is churned up during a pandemic. Societal anger usually finds familiar targets. If you are inclined to think that immigrants are responsible for all that is wrong in America or China, you are likely to think the pandemic is also the fault of immigrants or China. So I would expect anger and fear about the flu to target a few usual suspects. Immigrants, Germans, communists, wobblies, and African Americans. But that's not what happened, at least not to any significant degree. Conspiracy theories did pop up, complaining the flu had been created by German scientists and spread via German submarines. Aspirin, invented and sold by Bayer, a German company, was supposed to carry the virus. But these theories were given little credence. I can find no evidence that communists were blamed for the virus, or immigrants, wobblies, or people of color. I can't even find particular antagonism targeted at those groups during the pandemic. Afterwards, of course, we know tensions exploded, but even then I can't find any evidence that the flu was brought up, say, during race riots or strikes. So I can't say that the flu pandemic contributed to any of the conflicts we've discussed. But I wonder about this. I wonder if there's no evidence because no one has gone looking for that evidence. It may be that in a few years, we will have a convincing account of how the flu contributed to Red Summer or the Red Scare. Here's what I suspect based on what I know. And remember, I'm not a historian or an economist or political scientist. I'm just an English major who reads a lot of books. I think that during the flu, events moved so fast that there wasn't time for tensions to boil over. In most communities, the second wave of the flu lasted a month to eight weeks. During that time, people were in crisis mode. However, very few workers lost their jobs. People who feel economically secure usually don't take to the streets. Meanwhile, there was a lot of good news to counter the bad news. While the flu was at its worst, the stalemate on the Western Front ended, and the Allies swept up the Germans. The armistice was announced on November 11th. The mood was jubilant. I think it was only later, as 1919 wore on, that the mood changed. Now people were losing their jobs. Soldiers were coming home, and they found their positions had been taken by people of color. Germany was defeated, 
But now the Bolsheviks seemed ready to burst out of Russia and threaten the world. The memory of the flu was wrapped up in this huge, ugly ball of fear and frustration. It fueled the fire, but it wasn't the spark. Is that too poetic? Too fanciful? Perhaps. I'm an English major, remember? This leads us to the next question. Can the Roaring Twenties be traced to the pandemic? The 20s have a reputation as an era of good times, of wild parties, of desperate hedonism, of dancing the Charleston and speakeasies. Think of The Great Gatsby and The Sun Also Rises, all of those novels of hard-drinking, hard-partying, beautiful, broken people. In those books, the war is a looming shadow. Everyone is desperate to escape. And that is how this era has generally been understood, as a reaction to the horror of the Great War. Do we have that wrong? Were the 1920s actually reaction to the horror of the influenza pandemic? Unfortunately, this is another question that I can only ask, not answer. I can say this much. I mentioned in my previous episode that most of the writers of the era never wrote about the flu. They did write about the war. Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises is about a man whose war wound has left him unable to have sex. That's not subtext, that's text. Undoubtedly, the precariousness of life and the desire to have a good time now while you can is a theme of the era. How much of that can be traced to the pandemic and how much to the war, I simply don't know. If the Spanish flu haunted the 1920s, then it is subtext and will have to be carefully teased out. Graduate students, I await your dissertations. One final question, and we'll wrap this up. Andy asks, was there a gradual slide back to normal? Not really. It was more like flipping a switch. According to histories of the pandemic, the flu ended, cities lifted their restrictions, and life went back to the way it had been. Theaters reopened, masks were thrown away, men presumably started spitting in the street again, and the people of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania could again enjoy their God-given right to walk into a restaurant and order pie. Of course, it wasn't that simple. Many people needed weeks, if not months or even years, to recover from the illness. Some had lingering health problems that would last for years. I just told you that references to the flu are rare in 1920s literature. Well, here's one. The character of Mrs. Dalloway in the novel by Virginia Woolf is described as still pale after her bout with influenza, and her heart is said to be damaged by the illness. How you came out of the pandemic depended on your experience. For some people, life would never be what it had been. Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of the hyperlogical Sherlock Holmes, lost both his brother and his son in the pandemic. He never wrote another mystery and adopted a passionate belief in spiritualism. He regularly attended seances where he claimed he received reassuring messages from his son. Millions of families around the world were shattered by the flu. It's impossible to know how many children were orphaned in the pandemic, but it was in the hundreds of thousands in the United States alone. We know that in New York City, 31,000 children were left without parents. New orphanages were created around the country to care for them. 
children were also taken in by family members. For example, Mary McCarthy was six years old when both of her parents died of influenza. She and her three brothers were taken in by an aunt and uncle. It was an angry, unhappy, and abusive household. McCarthy, who went on to be a very successful writer, eventually found a more secure home with a grandfather. In 1920, Republican presidential candidate Warren G. Harding campaigned on a platform that promised, quote, a return to normalcy. This blanket statement had many meetings, including a rejection of Wilson's international focus and an embrace of American isolationism. But it also meant a return to life before the pandemic, before the war, before the Red Scare and the strikes and the riots and the exploding molasses tanks and the crashing dirigibles. We joke now about the before times. In 1920, the before times were much further away and far more rose-tinted. It was probably hard to remember a time before shortages and rationing, before liberty loans and recruitment drives, before men shipped off to France and women tried to hold things together, before fears that Germans and Bolsheviks lurked in every dark corner, before simply shaking hands with a friend could mean death. A return to normalcy. I've always found it a silly slogan. There's the oddness of the word normalcy. Critics charged it wasn't even a real word that Harding should have said normality. I've felt it was a hollow, meaningless promise. But now I think I get it. Life has been so incredibly weird lately. I learned a great phrase the other day, to be fractally wrong. It means being wrong on every level. You can zoom in to see individual acts of wrongness or zoom out and the big picture is still wrong. Well, current life is to me fractally weird. Life on the planet as a whole is weird. Going to the grocery store is weird. Just talking to people is weird. On every level of experience, life is strange and unsettled and the opposite of normal. So a return to normalcy sounds heavenly. I get it now in a way I never got it before. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out the website at www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com where you'll find a long list of sources for this episode. And visit me on Facebook or Twitter if you have follow-up questions to the follow-up. I want to thank my patrons for their continued generosity. Maggie S., Maggie T., and Kara, you guys are great. For those keeping track, people named Maggie now make up two-thirds of my donors. If you are a Maggie, you can join the club, or if you are a Kara, you can pitch in and see if you can outpace the Maggies, whatever your name. If you would like to support the podcast, visit the website and click the support button for links to either PayPal or Patreon. And I now have it set up so that PayPal notifies me when I receive a donation. Poor Maggie S. was donating her heart out and I had no idea. Mea culpa. In my next episode, we'll be looking at women's suffrage and the remarkable life of women's rights pioneer Alice Paul. I hope you join me. Thanks again for listening. Take care, stay safe, wear your flu fence, and see you in about two weeks.
I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is The Year That Was.